The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I really want to share with you today a story. It's one of my favorite stories. It's a story of God's grace. It's a story of God coming and stepping into time and space and history and turning a man's life totally to be dedicated to Jesus. Now, this man was not raised as a Christian. His parents were not Christian. In fact, he didn't even hear a sermon in his youth. He was completely illiterate. But as he finished his education and began to teach school, he began to listen and he began to read the scriptures and then decided that he was going to go back home to the state of New York. He was going to live with his parents and he was going to begin to study law. And so for three years he studied law and then began to work as an attorney. His name is Charles Finney a man with a very bright mind, a man who had not yet settled in his heart what he was going to do with Jesus Christ. Now, I so much like this story because it brushes away all of the modernism. It brushes away all of the compromise of our current day. It really focuses the question very sharply. What am I going to do about my soul's condition? And so he was brought face to face with the question of whether or not he would accept Christ and his gospel or whether he would simply pursue a worldly life. He only saw those two options. Today we manage to figure out a way to try to hang with Jesus and hang with the world. Finney's mind was much too exacting for that. He wanted no compromise. But he saw compromise in the Presbyterian church that he was a part of. But finally, one Sunday night in the autumn of 1821, he made up his mind that he would settle the question of his soul's salvation and if he could find it possible he would make his peace with God but he was a very proud man he didn't know he was proud at the time but all carnal minds are proud all carnal minds are at 
enmity with God. He had supposed that he didn't care much about what others thought of him. So he had been quite obvious in attending prayer meetings and and paying attention to religion while in Adams, New York. In this respect, he had led the church to think that he was very interested in the things of God. But when he had to face the question, what am I going to do about my soul's salvation? He found that he was very unwilling to have anyone know that he was seeking the salvation of his soul, that he was endeavoring to find if he could make peace with God. When he was praying now in his office, he would only whisper his prayer, and he would always plug the keyhole in the door lest someone should discover that he was engaged in prayer. Before that time, my Bible lay on the table with the rest of my law books, and it had never occurred to me to be ashamed of being found reading it any more than I should be ashamed of being found to read any of my other books. But after I had addressed myself to the, in earnest to the subject of my own salvation, I kept my Bible out of sight as much as I could. If I were reading it when anyone came in, I would throw my law books on top of it to create the impression that it had not been in my hands. Instead of being outspoken and willing to talk with anyone and everyone on the subject of God, I found myself unwilling to converse with anybody. I did not want to see my minister because I did not want to let him know how I felt. I had no confidence that he would understand my case and give me any good direction. For the same reasons, I avoided conversation with the elders of the church or with any of the Christian people that I knew. I was ashamed to let them know how I felt. On the one hand, and on the other, I was afraid that they would misdirect me. I felt myself left only to the Bible. Monday and Tuesday of that week, my convictions increased. But still it seemed as if my heart grew harder. I could not shed a tear. I could not pray. I had no opportunity to pray above a whisper, and frequently I felt that I would I would probably find relief in prayer if I could be alone and where I could use my voice freely and express myself. I was shy and avoided speaking to anybody on any subject as much as I could. I made sure not to arouse any suspicion that I was seeking the salvation of my soul. Tuesday night I became very nervous, and in the night a strange feeling came over me as if I were about to die. I knew that if I did die, I would sink down to hell. But I quieted myself as best I could until morning. At an early hour on Wednesday, I started for the office, but just before I arrived at the office, something seemed to confront me, as if an inner voice said to me, What are you waiting for? Did you not promise to give your heart to God? 
And what are you trying to do? Are you endeavoring to work out a righteousness of your own? At this point, the whole question of gospel salvation became open to me in a in a marvelous manner. I think, I think I then saw as clearly as I ever have in my life the reality and the fullness of the atonement of Christ. I saw that his work was a finished work and that instead of needing any righteousness of my own to recommend me to God, I had to submit myself to the righteousness of God through Christ. Gospel salvation seemed to be an offer to be accepted, something that was full and complete, and all that was necessary on my part was to agree to give up my sins and to accept Christ instead of being a thing to be brought about by my own works, salvation was a thing to be found entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ, who presented himself before me as God and as Savior. Without being distinctly aware of it, I had stopped in the street. I stopped in the street where the inward voice had first come upon me. How long I remained in that position, I cannot say. But after I contemplated this distinct revelation, that is, the revelation of of Jesus Christ, the inner voice seemed to say, Will you accept Jesus now? Will you accept Jesus today? Yes, I will accept him today or I will die in the attempt. Now, north of the village and over a hill lay a stretch of woods in which I walked almost daily when the weather was pleasant. It was now the 10th of October, and the time was past for my frequent walks there. Nevertheless, instead of going to the office, I turned and bent my course toward the woods, feeling that I must be alone and away from all human eyes and ears, so that I could pour out my prayer to God. But still my pride showed itself As I went over the hill, it occurred to me that someone might see me and suppose that I was going away to pray. Yet there was probably not a person on earth who would have suspected such a thing of me. But so great was my pride, and so much was I possessed with fear of man, that I sulked along the fence until I got so far out of sight that no one from the village could possibly see me. I then made my way into the woods nearly a quarter of a mile, went over on the other side of the hill and found a place where some large trees had fallen across each other, leaving an open place between them, and there I saw I could make a kind of a closet. I crept into this place, and I knelt down to pray. As I turned to go into the woods, I remember having said, I will give my heart to God or I will never come down from here. I recall repeating this as I went up, I will give my heart to God before I ever come down again. 
when I attempted to pray, I found that my heart would not pray. I had supposed that if I could only be where I could speak aloud without being overheard, I would pray freely. But when I tried to pray, I was mute. I had nothing to say to God, or at least I could say only a few words and those without a heart. In attempting to pray, I would hear a rustling in the leaves and would stop and look up to see if someone were coming. I did this several times. Finally, I found myself sinking fast to despair. I said to myself, I cannot pray. My heart is dead to God. My heart will not pray. I then reproached myself for having promised to give my heart to God before I left the woods. When I tried, I found I could not give my heart to God. My soul hung back, and my heart was in no way going out to God. I began to feel deeply that it was too late for me, that I was past all hope, that God must have given up on me. I then began to think my promise very rash, that I would give my heart to God that day or die in the attempt. It seemed to me as if that were binding upon my soul, and yet I was, I was now going to break my vow. A great discouragement came over me, and I felt almost too weak to get up off my knees. Just at that moment, I again thought I heard someone approach me. I opened my eyes to see whether it were so. And just then, it was distinctly shown to me that my pride was the great difficulty that stood in the way. An overwhelming sense of my wickedness in being ashamed to have a human being see me on my knees before God took such powerful possession of me that I cried at the top of my voice and exclaimed that I would not leave that place if all the men on earth and all the devils in hell surrounded me. What, I said, such a degraded sinner as I am, on my knees confessing my sins to the great and holy God? How can I be ashamed to have any human being a sinner like myself find me on my knees endeavoring to make my peace with my offended God. Sin appeared awful, infinite. It broke me down before the Lord. Just at that point, this passage of Scripture seemed to drop into my mind with a flood of light. Then you will pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Jeremiah twenty nine twelve and 13. Somehow I knew that this was a passage of Scripture, although I don't think I'd ever heard it. I don't think I'd ever read it. I knew that it was God's Word and God's voice that spoke to me. I instantly seized hold of this with my heart. I had intellectually believed the Bible before, but never had I known that faith was a voluntary trust instead of an intellectual decision of the mind. 
I was conscious of trusting at that moment in God's veracity. I cried out to him, Lord, I take you at your word. You know that I'm searching for you with all my heart and that I have come to pray to you and you have promised to hear me. Now this seemed to confirm that I could indeed fulfill my vow that very day. The Spirit seemed to emphasize this idea in the words, when you search for me with all your heart. I told the Lord that I would take him at his word, that I knew he would not lie, and that I was therefore sure that he heard my prayer and that I would find him. He then gave me many more promises, both from the Old and the New Testament, especially some regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. I never can in words make any human being understand how precious and true those promises appeared to me. I took them one after another as infallible truth, the assertions of God who cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. They did not seem to fall into my intellect so much as into my heart to be put within the grasp of the voluntary powers of my mind. I took hold of them and fastened upon them with the grasp of a drowning man. Now let me just take a side note, and then we'll come back to the reading of this conversion to Christ of Charles Finney. In Second Peter, the first chapter, he tells us that we participate in the divine nature through the precious promises. You cannot come to Jesus absent the precious promises of Scripture. If you want to make your peace with God, you're going to have to focus your attention on the promises of God. Salvation does not come because we want it. Salvation comes because we allow the promises of God to take root in our hearts. If you don't allow these promises, you cannot participate in the divine nature. The work of salvation is a supernatural work that God does in us. One man from a Hindu background said to me, I'm going to leave the Christian faith. It's not getting me where I want to go. I'm not having the financial success I need, and I'm not having a number of other things. And I said to him, you said you would follow Jesus because of what you wanted him to do for you in the flesh? No, the promises of God come and deal with our hearts. I want to report that this man has since totally turned to Jesus and is a faithful follower of Jesus at the National Prayer Chapel, a young man on fire for Jesus. I praise God for him. Now back to the story, Conversion to Christ, out of the book, Holy Spirit Revivals, written by Charles Finney. He 
He then gave me many other promises from both the Old and the New Testaments, especially some regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. I can never in words make any human being understand how precious and true these promises appeared to me. I continued to pray in this way and receive and take hold of promises for a long time. I don't know how long. I prayed until my mind became so full that I was, before I was aware of it, I was on my feet, and I was stumbling up the hill toward the road. I didn't think about whether I'd been converted, but as I went up, brushing through the leaves and bushes, I recollect saying with great emphasis, if I am ever converted, I will preach the gospel. I soon reached the road that led to the village, and I began to reflect on what had passed. I found that my mind had become wonderfully quiet and peaceful. I said to myself, What is this? I must have grieved the Holy Spirit entirely away. I've, I've lost all of my conviction. I don't have a particle of concern about my soul. It must be that the Spirit of God has left me. Indeed, I never was so far from being concerned about my salvation in my life. Then I remembered what I had said to God while I was on my knees, that I would take him at his word. And so I recalled many things I had said, and I concluded that it was no wonder the Spirit had left me. I imagined that for such a sinner as I was to take hold of God's word in that way was obviously presumption, if not blasphemy. I concluded that in my excitement I had grieved the Holy Spirit and perhaps committed the unpardonable sin. I walked quietly toward the village, and so perfectly quiet was my mind that it seemed as if all nature listened. I'd gone into the woods immediately after an early breakfast, and when I returned to the village I found it was already lunchtime. Yet I'd not been aware of the time that had passed. It appeared to me that I had been gone but for a few short minutes. But how was I to account for the quiet of my mind? I tried to recall my conviction to get back again the load of sin under which I'd been laboring, but all sense of sin, all consciousness of present sin or guilt had departed from me. I said to myself, what is this, that I cannot arouse any sense of guilt in my soul, as great a sinner as I am? I tried in vain to make myself anxious about my present state. I was so quiet and peaceful that I tried to feel concerned about it, lest it should be a result of my having grieved the spirit away. But no matter what view I took of it, I could not be anxious at all about my soul and my spiritual state. The repose of my mind was unspeakably great. I never can describe it in words. The, the thought of God was sweet to my mind, and most profound spiritual tranquility had taken full possession of me. This was a great mystery. I went to lunch and found I had no appetite to eat. I then went to the office and found that Squire Wright had gone to lunch. I took down my brass viola and, as I was accustomed to do, began to play and sing some pieces of sacred music. But as soon as I began to sing those sacred words, 
I began to weep. It seemed as if my heart were all liquid. My feelings were in such a state, I could not hear my own voice in, in singing without causing tears to overflow. I wondered at this and tried to hold back my tears, but could not. After trying in vain to suppress my tears, I put away my instrument. I stopped singing. After lunch, Squire Wright and I were engaged in moving our books and furniture to another office. We were very busy in this and had little conversation all afternoon. My mind remained completely, profoundly tranquil, however. There was a great sweetness and, and profoundly tranquil attitude in my heart. There was such great sweetness and tenderness in my thoughts and my feelings. Everything seemed to be going right and nothing seemed to ruffle or disturb me in the least. Just before evening, I decided that as soon as I were left alone in the office, I would try to pray again, that I was not going to abandon the subject of religion and give it up at any rate. Therefore, although I no longer had any concern about my soul, I would still continue to pray. By evening, we got the books and the furniture adjusted, and I made a good fire in the fireplace, hoping to spend the evening alone. Just at dark, Squire Wright, Seeing that everything was adjusted, he bade me good night and went home. I accompanied him to the door, and as I closed the door and turned around, my heart seemed to be liquid within me. All of my feelings seemed to rise and flow out, and the utterances of my heart were, I want to pour my whole soul out to God. The rising of my soul was so great that I rushed into the room behind the front office to pray. There was no fire and there was no light in that room. Nevertheless, it appeared perfectly lit to me. As I went in and shut the door after me, it seemed as if I met the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. It seemed to me that I saw him as I would see any other man. He said nothing but looked at me in such a manner as to break me down right at his feet. I've ever since regarded this as the most remarkable event, for it seemed real to me. I fell down at his feet and I poured out my soul to him. I wept aloud like a child, and I made such confession as I could with my my choked utterances, it seemed to me that I bathed his feet with tears, but cannot recall that I had any distinct impression that I actually touched him. I must have continued in this state for a good while, but my mind was too much absorbed with the interview with Jesus to recall anything I said. Yet I know, as soon as my mind became calm enough to break off from the interview, I returned to the front office and found that the fire was nearly burned out already, but as I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. Without any expectation of it, without ever having thought that there was any such thing for me, without any recollection that I'd ever heard the thing mentioned by any person in the world, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through my body and soul. I could feel the impression of the Holy Spirit like a wave of electricity going through me. 
Indeed, it seemed to come in waves of liquid love. I cannot express it any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recall distinctly that it seemed to fan me like an immense wing. No words can express the wonderful love that was poured out. Romans 5, 5. I wept aloud with joy and love, and I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. These waves came over me and over me and over me until I cried out, I will die if these waves continue to pass over me. I said, Lord, I cannot bear any more. Yet I had no fear of death. How long I continued in this state with this baptism, continuing to roll over me and go through me, I don't know. But I know it was late in the evening when a member of my choir, for I was the leader of the choir, came into the office to see me. He found me in this state of loud weeping, and he said to me, Mr. Feeney, Finney, what ails you? What ails you? I could not answer him for some time. He then said, Are you in pain? I gathered myself together as best I could, and I replied, No, but so happy that I cannot live. He turned and left the office, and in a few minutes he returned with one of the elders of the church. His shop was just across the way from our office. Now, this elder was a very, very serious man. I'd scarcely ever seen him laugh. In my presence, he'd been very watchful. When he came in, I was still in the state of loud weeping. The elder asked me how I felt, and I began to tell him. Instead of saying anything, he, he fell into joyous, spasmodic laughter. It seemed as if it were impossible for him to keep from laughing from the very bottom of his heart. Now, there was a young man in the neighborhood who had been a close friend of mine. Our ministers, I afterward learned, had repeatedly talked with him on the subject of religion and had warned him against being misled by me. Pastor Gale informed him that I was very careless about religion. He thought that if my friend associated much more with me, his mind would be diverted, and he would not be converted. And after I was converted, my friend told me that he had said to Mr. Gale several times, when he had admonished him against associating with me, that my conversations had more affected him than all of the preaching he'd heard from Pastor Gale. Well, just at this time, when I was giving an account of my feelings to the elder, this young man came into the office. I was sitting with my back toward the door and barely noticed that he came in. He listened with astonishment to what I was saying, and the first I knew he fell upon the floor and cried out in the greatest agony of mind, Pray for me! Pray for me! The elder of the church and the other member knelt down and began to pray for him, and when they had prayed, I prayed for him myself. And then they all left me alone. I wondered, why did the elder laugh so? Did he think I was delusional or crazy? This thought brought a kind of darkness over my mind, and I began to ask myself whether it was proper for me, such a sinner as I had been, to pray for that young man. A cloud seemed to come over me. I felt I could not rest in anything. 
After a little while, I retired to bed, and not distressed in mind, but I just went to bed, but still at a loss as to what to make of my present state, notwithstanding the baptism I had received. My view was so obscured that I went to bed without feeling sure that my peace was made yet with God. I soon fell asleep, but almost as soon awoke again on account of the great flow of the love of God that was in my heart. I was so filled with love I could not sleep. I fell asleep again and awoke in the same manner. And when I awoke, this temptation toward unbelief returned upon me, and the love that seemed to be in my heart abated. But as soon as I was asleep, it was so warm within me that I would immediately awake. Thus I continued until late at night I obtained some sound repose. When I awoke in the morning, the sun had risen and was pouring a clear light into my room, and words cannot express the impression that this sunlight made upon me. Instantly the baptism that I had received the night before returned upon me in the same manner. I rose to my knees in the bed and wept aloud with joy, remaining for some time too much overwhelmed with the baptism of the Spirit to do anything but pour out my soul to God. It seemed as if this morning's baptism was accompanied by a gentle reproof, and the Spirit seemed to say to me, "'Will you doubt?' "'Will you doubt?' "'I cried, "'No, I will not doubt. "'I cannot doubt.' "'Then he cleared the subject up so much "'that it was in fact impossible for me to doubt "'that the Spirit of God had, take pos had fully taken possession of my soul. "'Now in this state, "'I was taught that justification by faith "'is a present experience. "'I'd never distinctly viewed this "'as a fundamental doctrine of the gospel.' Indeed, I did not know at all what it meant in the proper sense, but I could now see and understand what was meant by the passage, having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 I could see that. From the moment I believed while up in the woods, all sense of condemnation had entirely dropped out of my mind, and I could not feel a sense of guilt or condemnation by any effort I could make. My sins were gone, and my sense of guilt was gone as if I had never sinned at all. This was just the revelation that I needed. As far as I could see, I was in a state in which I did not continue to sin. Instead of feeling that I was sinning all the time, my heart was so full of love that it overflowed. My cup ran over with blessings and with love, and I could not feel that I was sinning against, against God, nor could I recover the least sense of guilt for my past sins. On that same morning, I went to the office and there I was experiencing the renewal of those mighty waves of love and salvation overflowing me. And when Squire Wright came into the office, I said a few words to him on the subject of his salvation. He looked at me with astonishment, but he made no reply. He dropped his head, and after standing a few minutes, he left the office. I thought no more of it then, but afterward I found that the remark I had made pierced him like a sword and he did not recover from it until he was converted. Soon after Squire Wright had left the office, a deacon came into the office, and he said to me, 
Mr. Finney, do you recall that my case is to be tried at ten o'clock this morning? I suppose you're ready? I had been retained to act as his attorney. I replied to him, Deacon, I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ to plead his cause, and I cannot plead yours. He looked at me with astonishment and said, What do you mean? I told him in a few words that I had enlisted in the cause of Christ and that he must go and get someone else to attend his lawsuit. I could not do it. He dropped his head and went out without making any reply. A few minutes later, in passing the window, I observed that the deacon was standing in the road, seemingly lost, in deep meditation. He went away, as I afterward learned, and immediately settled his suit. He then committed himself to prayer and got into a much, much higher state than he'd ever been in before. I soon set out from the office to converse with all the people I could find about their souls. I had the impression, which has never left my mind, that God wanted me to preach the gospel and that I must begin immediately. I somehow seemed to know with certainty no possibility of doubt. I knew I had received the love of God, and I knew I had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that I was no longer walking in any sin. When I was first convicted, the thought had occurred to me that if I was ever converted, I would have to leave my profession, of which I was very fond, and begin preaching the gospel. This at first was an obstacle to me, I thought I'd spent too much time and study in my profession to think now of becoming a Christian. If by doing so, I would be obligated to preach the gospel. However, I had at last come to this conclusion that I must submit to God and that I had never commenced the study of law out of any regard to God and that I had no right to place any confidence conditions on him. I had laid aside the thought of becoming a minister until the thought came to me, and as I have related, on my way from my place of prayer in the woods. But now, after receiving the baptism of the Spirit, I was quite willing to preach the gospel. Indeed, I found that I was unwilling to do anything else. I no longer had any desire to practice law. Everything in that direction no longer had any attraction for me. I had no desire to make money. I had no hungering and thirsting after worldly pleasures and amusements. My whole mind was taken up with Jesus and his salvation. And worldly concerns were very little consequence to me. Nothing, it seemed to me, could could be put in competition with the worth of souls. And I thought no labor could be so sweet and no employment so exalted as that of holding up Jesus Christ to a dying world. So with this impression, I went forth to converse with anyone I could meet I first dropped in at the shop of a shoemaker who was a pious man and, in my estimation, one of the most praying Christians in the church. I found him in conversation with the son of one of the elders of the church. The young man was defending universalism. The shoemaker turned to me and said, Mr. Finney, what do you think of the argument of this young man? The young man then stated what he'd been saying in defense of universalism. I was so ready with an answer 
that in a moment I was able to blow his argument into the wind. The young man saw at once that his argument was gone, and he rose up without making any reply and went out suddenly. But soon I observed, as I stood in the middle of the room, that the young man, instead of going along the street, had passed around the shop and had climbed over the fence and was heading straight across the fields toward the woods. I thought no more of it until evening when the young man came out and appeared to be a bright convert for Jesus, telling of his experience. He'd gone into the woods, and there God had, God had given him a new heart. I spoke with many people that day. I believe the Spirit of God made a lasting impression on every one of them. I cannot remember one whom I spoke with who was not soon after convicted. In the afternoon, I called at the house of a friend where a young man lived who was employed in distilling whiskey. The family had heard that I had become a Christian, and as they were about to sit down to tea, they urged me to sit down and have tea with them. The man of the house and his wife were both people of faith, but the wife's sister, who was present, was unconverted. The young man who distilled whiskey, a distant relative of the family, was rather outspoken and talkative. He was a young man with a great deal of energy. I sat down with them at tea, and they requested me to ask a blessing. Though I'd never before asked a blessing, I did not hesitate a moment, but commenced to ask the blessing of God as we were sitting around the table. I'd hardly begun. Before the state of these young people rose before my mind, and excited so much compassion that I burst into weeping and was unable to proceed with the blessing. Everyone around the table sat speechless for a short time, and I just continued to weep, and suddenly the young man moved back from the table and rushed out of the room. He fled to his room and locked himself in, as was not seen again until the next morning when he came out expressing a blessed hope in Jesus. He has been for many years an able minister of the gospel. In the course of the day, my conversations had created a good deal of astonishment in the village. In the evening, without any appointed time having been set that I could learn, I observed that people were going to the place where they usually held their prayer meetings. I afterward learned that sometime before this some members of the church had proposed to make me a subject of prayer. I also learned that Mr. Gale or Pastor Gale had discouraged them, saying that he was not able to believe that I would ever be converted because I was very much enlightened upon the subject of religion, but much hardened. Furthermore, he said it was almost discouraging that I led the choir and taught the young people sacred music. He said they were too much under my influence. After I was converted, I found that some of the wicked people in the town had hidden behind me. One man in particular, who had a very pious wife, had repeatedly said to her, "'If religion is true, why don't you convert Finney?' If you Christians can convert Finney, I will believe also. 
an old lawyer by the, an old lawyer living in Adams heard that I'd been converted and he said that it was all a hoax that I was simply trying to see what I could make Christian people believe. However, with one consent, the people seemed to rush to the place of worship. I went there myself, and the minister was there along with nearly all the principal people in the village. No one seemed ready to open the meeting, but the house was packed to utter capacity. I did not wait for anybody but arose and began by saying that I then knew that, that religion was from God. I went on and told such parts of my experience that it seemed important to me to tell. The man who'd promised his wife that if I was converted, he would believe, was present, and the old attorney was also present. What the Lord enabled me to say seemed to make a wonder, take a wonderful hold upon the people. Some said I was crazy. But others said he's in earnest. Others said I was deranged. As soon as I'd finished speaking, Pastor Gale arose and made a confession. He confessed that he had discouraged the church when they proposed to pray for me. He said also that he had heard that day that I was converted. He had promptly said he didn't believe it. He said he had no faith. He spoke in a very humble manner. I'd never before prayed in public, but soon after Mr. Gale or Pastor Gale spoke, he called on me to pray. We had a wonderful, wonderful meeting that evening, and from that day we had a meeting every evening for a long time, and the work spread on every side. I was a leader among the young people. I immediately set up a meeting for them, which they all attended, and I gave up my time to labor for their conversions. And in a very wonderful manner, the Lord blessed every effort that was made. They were converted one after another and with great rapidity. The work continued among them so that only one of them was left unconverted. The work spread among all classes of people and extended itself not only through the village, but also out of the village in every direction. My heart was so full that for more than a week I did not feel at all inclined to sleep or eat. I literally seemed to have meat to eat that the world knew nothing of. My mind was overflowing with the love of God. I went on in that way for a good many days until I found I must eat and I must sleep or I would become insane. From that point, I was more cautious in my labors and regularly ate and slept. The Word of God has wonderful power. Every day I was surprised to find that a few words spoken to an individual would strike his heart like an arrow. I've been reading to you the story of Charles Finney's conversion to Jesus Christ. It's very telling to me that the first thing that happened to Charles Finney was a sense of utter peace in his heart. And I want to ask you today, do you have that peace of God in your heart? Now, it's very clear to me 
that a sinner who refuses to give up his sin will be endlessly punished if you die in your sin. Now, in this broadcast, I present the gospel in such a way that you are taught that without the divine teaching and the Holy Spirit in a supernatural work of God, you will not be reconciled to God. This is not just an intellectual process. You are required to pray in faith and in the spirit of repentance, and you must commit yourself to unalterably obey the will of God. You cannot do your duty to God if you are unwilling to give your heart utterly to him to repent and believe and submit to all of his call to obey. Now you you cannot simply say, I will follow Jesus. You must be possessed by the Holy Spirit. And I tell you today, you cannot continue to walk in any recognizable or known sin. If you do, you will grieve the Holy Spirit from you. You will be religious, but you will not be a true Christian. And so I ask you today, do you have the full peace of Jesus Christ in your heart? The gift I would give to you for this Christmas is the gift of Jesus, the man wrapped in God. I would give to you the gift of God wrapped in man. What have you done with Jesus, and what is the condition of your soul? And have you made peace with this God? Have you entirely turned away from the wickedness of your heart? I tell you today, I have absolute peace in my soul. I have no condemnation upon my heart. I am walking clean before God without any recognizable or known sin. I have obeyed, I have repented, I have confessed. I have done all that I know that Jesus has asked me to do. And there is such joy and such peace in the midst of many trials, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of the ongoing work of life. I have peace in my heart. Do you have peace in your heart? Does the peace of Jesus rest in you? Or do you have a guilty conscience? Have you made your peace with Jesus? Almighty God, I pray for every person listening to this broadcast today. And I ask that in your grace and in your mercy, you would send your Holy Spirit to deal with each person. That you would pierce their heart. That you would draw them to yourself and in kindness and mercy. You would cause them to make the decision to seek you, Jesus, with all of their hearts.
Thank you, my Lord. I pray in your holy name. Amen. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley, the National Prayer Chapel. You're welcome to send tithes and offerings to help cover the cost of this broadcast. And I want to thank all of you who have done that. I received yesterday many cards and letters. I was greatly encouraged by those testimonies of your faith and of the change that Jesus has made in you. Let me give you the address. And please, I would love to hear your testimony. Don't just send a check or cash or money or send a testimony with you of what God has done. I'd be very interested in reading them. And if you have no money, send me a testimony anyway. It encourages my heart. Send it to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, Two two, one nine five. I also encourage you to go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of His glory.